Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 25th, 2023, and the news is, I'm not sure whether it's good or bad, but the future is back. Uncertainty is back. Um, we seem to be once again living in profoundly turbulent times, when it, particularly when it comes to technology. Generative AI is, seems to be changing everything. It managed uh, this machine learning, managed to pass a Wharton Business School test, which means that uh, the whole point of going to business school might seem to be moot since machines can do as well as humans. Um, it's changing the relations between the United States and China. If anything, it's intensifying the competition between these two techno superpowers. It's even coming for cinema dubbing and audio AI. So for all you know, this introduction and this show and the world that you live in may be a world of robots and generative AI. One person who's very good at navigating this future of navigating uncertainty is my guest on the show today. She was on the show a couple of years ago. Margaret Heffernan is one of the world's leading thinkers about the future and uncertainty. Her last book, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, was shortlisted for lots of serious prizes. And Margaret is joining us now. Margaret, welcome. Uh, Hi, are we uh, Are we back in the future, Margaret? Has the future returned? <laughs> The future is always returning, but all in, always in a slightly different garb, I think. Um, so how I mean, are we going to navigate this particular generative AI future? You've done a lot of thinking about the uncertainty that uh, disruptive technology produces. Generative AI is, is, is really quite radical in its implications. What, what, rather than talking, I mean, I know you're not an expert on generative AI itself, but what lessons does your book Uncharted offer about navigating the future? Well, I think the key thing when it comes to new technologies is to understand that, you know, the primary product that comes out of Silicon Valley is hype and the secondary product, you know, is technology. So I think we are seeing a lot of hype about how this is just going to be able to do everything. Um, because, of course, that's how people raise more investment for their businesses. That's how they get their soft price up. Um, and I think what we need to do instead of swooning and saying, oh, my God, how wonderful. What a shame I feel rather behind the times. I better get with it and see what is so fantastic about this stuff. I think what we need to do is kind of, you know, get over the vapors and sit down, come to terms with what it is, what it can do and what it can't do. It definitely can't do everything people are claiming it can do. And then think about how comfortable are we with that and where do we wish it to go? Because one of the things we've seen consistently from Silicon Valley is that it will introduce technologies where it doesn't necessarily think about its consequences. And then it develops them without thinking about their consequences and not really wishing to see any difficulty. And then when the shit hits the fan, as it regularly, almost predictably does, Everybody throws their hands up and say, what can we do about it? It's here. And I think if we've learned anything from the introduction of new technologies, it's that there are always going to be perverse outcomes. 
we need to identify them early and start thinking about how they get fixed or avoided until we're being told in rather authoritarian terms, we better just get used to it. What about the issue, Margaret, of charting a future in which it's not entirely clear what our place as humans is? Um, you, you wrote an interesting piece recently on asking when an artist knows when something's finished. Uh, that perhaps distinguishes human creatives from machine creatives because mm -hmm. machine it never occurs to a machine to think, well, this story, this piece of art, this song, this movie can be improved. Is that one of the areas where we can remind ourselves of our value in the future? Well, I think it's obviously a really fundamental part of the artistic creative process, which is to evaluate what we've done. And, you know, most great writers um, will talk very eloquently, not so much about the difficulty of writing, which is excruciating, but the joy of rewriting, which is about being able to think about what's just been done and how it might be improved, or indeed how it might not be actually what was wanted in the first place. I think one of the things that's so interesting about this generative technology is that essentially it's kind of copying from existing models. And so it doesn't have any evaluative capacity at all. It's just kind of, it's just a, a wildly accelerated mashup, right? You'll remember Kirby Ferguson's art argument that all art is a mashup. Well, this is kind of art on steroids, if you like. But I think, you know, what these technologies aren't doing, can't do, is infuse that work with meaning. You know, that art derives from people's extremely complex and hugely diversified experience of being alive today and finding new forms in which to articulate that. And although that derives from things in the past, it is fundamentally about the now and the moment and the today. And I think what's so striking about the generative technologies is they all basically are parasites on the past. They feed off of what has been done and then call it novelty. But really, it's just kind of like a, a microwaved meal. Yeah, it's an intriguing way of putting it, Margaret. I don't use my microwave. My wife uses the microwave all the time. I always thought it ruins food, but maybe that's my problem. Talking well, about parasites of the past, but, but in all seriousness, if it is a microwave of the past, aren't most of most food we eat is, is not very good in the first place. So there was a piece about how Nick Cave um, was really disappointed with the quality of the generative AI uh, created around his songs. I'm sure we couldn't replicate a quality Margaret Heffernan book. But I had um, I had Steve Rubin on the show, uh, 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 a big time New York publisher, and he acknowledged that eighty five percent of books published could could be produced by AI. So it's all very well to replicate unsuccessfully um, Nick Cave or maybe Margaret Heffernan, but most people's stuff isn't very good in the first place. So it's not actually that hard to replicate. Is that fair, or am I being too elitist? Well, I think it's a little bit elitist, but I think the really crucial thing is um, the important thing about any book or art or piece of music or whatever you want to talk about is what it means to other people. Toni Morrison used to talk about co-collaborators, 
right? That the book doesn't exist. I mean, it might to a publisher, it might just be the physical object, but actually the book exists in, in the reader's mind, not on the page. And so the issue is, what does the book do to the reader? And does the reader value it and remember it? And does that experience of reading the book become a part of the reader, right? We know, for example, that you can learn music by reading it, which means essentially what you're doing is you're singing it in your head. And that gives you that it gives you the capacity essentially to embody what is inert on the page. Exactly the same thing happens when you read a book of fiction or nonfiction. You're having an imaginative experience. So it changes you. So I think the issue about, you know, whether somebody can write my book or not isn't really as important or as interesting as can that book create a meaningful experience in the mind of the reader that changes who they are and how they see the world. But isn't that the next step then? For step one is cloning Margaret Heffernan or Nick Cave or Toni Morrison. Clone two is... Sorry, uh, no, that was a Freudian error. Uh, step two is cloning the reader. But then, and then what for? So they so have we all that have meaningful experience that you talk so about. What's the, what, what on earth is the point? Well, I mean, it's, you know, we don't need more people on the planet. We need fewer people on the planet. You know, we'd actually, this is the ultimate pointlessness, which is creating books for people who don't want to read and don't care what they read. You may be right, which is particularly depressing if, if you're in the publishing business or as a writer. You've given a lot of thought, Margaret, also to the environment. And of course, that's part of our uncertain future. You have a play, um, The Shell Seven, uh, on the BBC. Uh, What's your sense when it comes to uncertainty in the environment? Tell me a little bit about the Shell 7, which, of mm -hmm. course, is based on a, on a real event. Right. So the Shell 7 is um, based on the court transcripts of a trial in which seven Extinction Rebellion activists were accused of criminal damage by breaking windows at the Shell headquarters in London and daubing the building with graffiti. And they were given a jury trial because of the value of the cost of the damage that they'd done. There was absolutely no doubt that they had done the damage and that it was them because it's on all sorts of television footage. And, um, and they, the judge in the case deemed that there was no real defense for what they had done, um, which would suggest automatically that they're guilty. And yet... The jury in this case found all of the defendants not guilty. So the play that I wrote, which is a, a verbatim play, which intercuts interviews with the defendants and um, sections of the trial, really looks at what happened. How did that verdict um, get take place? How was it arrived at? And what does it really mean? And in essence, I would argue that what happened is that in the courtroom, listening to the defendants talking about who they were, what they'd done, and why they'd done it, which was the only evidence they were allowed to present, the jury decided it wasn't a crime, that they had obeyed their conscience and they had done what they believed to be right. 
And I think what's really striking is we're seeing a number of verdicts like this in the UK, which is that increasingly people are coming to see that the systems that are supposed to protect us don't work, that we are not being protected against extreme weather events of the kind that you've seen in California and we've seen in the UK. People in the, across the world are not being protected from you know, storms and floods and migration. And that in a situation where the state is no longer protecting people, which is the foundation of the social contract, that then to express your conscience against the law is not necessarily a crime. Now, I think this is quite profound, and I think it leads, you know, it lends enormous weight to the increasing campaign to make ecocide one of the Rome statute laws, which says, you but, know, but uh, I, I take your point, Margaret. But I, I, I suspect you wouldn't say the same thing, for example, about people demonstrating against abortion, would you? Well, I would certainly protect the right of people to demonstrate against So abortion. would you make the same argument? I don't know if there are cases uh, equivalent to the Shell 7 about uh, people demonstrating against the right for women to have abortions. Doesn't this, um, th this... Uh, well, I can't comment on a trial that hasn't happened. Well, but, <laughs> but, but, um, but, but I, is I, it I, coincidental I think... that you... And, and, I, and maybe I'm wrong here, but that you share the sentiment of the Shell 7. If you didn't, you might be a little bit more ambivalent. Well, I think what was interesting, the reason I, I got interested in the case was because nobody could explain what had happened. And, um, and so I wanted to know what had happened. And I think that what happened in the courtroom is that the jury started to understand that the defendants were actually acting on their behalf. And in that event, could not find it in themselves to feel that a crime had been committed. Now, obviously, I can't, I can't comment on a fictitious you know, court case that hasn't happened. Um, but I think what's, what is becoming really interesting in this space is the degree to which the law is really being tested in the sense, for example, we've had cases about can a lake defend itself? Can a river be protected? because actually we don't have laws sufficient to the crisis that we're facing. And so each one of these strange cases is really stretching the law to see actually how capable is it of defending us. And if it can't protect us against the failure of our governments to act on climate change, what do we do next? It's interesting, um, we've done some shows about digital technology which allows us supposedly to talk to trees and plants and, and other species. I wonder if that could also be used in, in arguments of people like the Shell 7. Well, I think it's a really interesting thing that's, that's happening, which is you, on the one hand, you have science showing that actually nature is in, you know, infinitely more complex and communicative than we used to think, and that that has an impact in the law in terms of whether or not nature has rights. And the whole ecocide campaign has been to say that actually the environment should have rights. 
Um, and it would benefit humanity if it were to have those. You know, and so the argument is that there should be a crime against ecocide in exactly the same that way that there is a crime against genocide, in the sense that the crime of genocide harms all mankind, not just those who are killed. I know you've also, uh, you're in the process of, of writing something about the famous James Baldwin, uh, mm. uh, Buckley, uh, William F. Buckley debate from 1965 on American race. Of course, lots of upheaval on that front over the last few years in the United States and Black Lives Matter. Tell me a little bit about the debate and, and what you're writing and how that might also play into your arguments about the Shell 7 and the, the, the moral imperative, shall we say, to act. Mm. Well, I became interested in this... Um, Partly because I, I spent some time with Baldwin in the 80s when he was pretty much forgotten. And it was an experience that I've certainly never forgotten. And I've been really heartened to see him, you know, re-embraced by a whole new generation that didn't realize just how brilliant a writer and how brilliant a thinker he was. Um, the, the Cambridge debate is really interesting. It was kind of part of a book tour. Um, and... But, you know, in the sense that Baldwin was, was promoting a book at the time, Buckley was invited to join and couldn't, couldn't resist. Uh, Baldwin gives, uh, as you might expect, a, a really staggering argument saying that the, that the American dream has been achieved at the expense of the American Negro. And Buckley debates that. Baldwin is staggeringly eloquent and Buckley is breathtakingly arrogant. I mean, his, his incapacity to sense the, the space in, you know, in which he's speaking is pretty stunning. But clearly he came to Cambridge thinking it's going to be full of people just like me, right? You know, who are upper class, well-educated and absolutely horrified by what's happening in the streets of America. And he was entirely wrong. I mean, he lost by a tremendous margin. But what I'm really interested in in exploring the debate is not just the tremendous drama of it and the great eloquence of Baldwin. I'm really interested in then looking at how people who were in the room at that time feel it relates to today. Um, and there are quite a lot of people who were still about, the, the historian Simon Sharma, Simon Sharma being one of them, who was a teller at the debate. Um, I'm interested in that view, and I'm also interested in when we replay the debate, what younger people think about it now, and how far they think that the American dream today is really a dream that they can or want to embrace. And what's your take on that? Your sense. I mean, is this going to be a book, a play, uh, an article? Well, it's going to be a public event, and it's um, and I'm not quite sure what it's going to be beyond that, uh, which is why I've just started digging into it. Um, I think it's a really interesting way to see where we've come from and maybe where we are. I think that Buckley's uh, perspective doesn't hold up very well. I think Baldwin still looks ahead of his time. Even today so in 2023. Even, even today. I mean, he certainly... Uh, he yeah. best 
questions about what, what has the cost been of the achievements that we've made? Yeah, there's no one, I think, who, um, whose, whose reputation, if anything, has, has sort of, that has been maintained, or as you say, it went away, but now it's back. We did a show yesterday with George McCalman, who's written a, a visual history of, uh, of, of black America, and Baldwin is remarkable in that, or at least his representations of Baldwin. Mm -hmm. You present, um, uh, Margaret, uh, uh, William F. Buckley Jr. as, shall we say, uh, a narcissist, someone very full of himself. He certainly looks full of himself in the in the photo we're showing uh, in his Cambridge debate with uh, with James Baldwin. For 2023, you contributed to a piece about good riddance to the year of the narcissist. That year, of course, being 2022. Elon Musk looks a little bit like Eli, uh, James uh, 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 Buckley, William Buckley, in, in the photo that we're showing. Are we really? In 2023, Margaret, can we finally put narcissists to bed, shall we say? <laughs> the, the Elon Musks and the William F. Buckleys of the world? Or is oh, it wish... another false promise? Yeah, I think it's a false promise. I wish we could. I think we're in a moment, and it's been quite a long moment, of debate between whether we believe that the solutions to the immense problems we face can be addressed collaboratively and collectively or whether we are in a situation where we can only be rescued by a superman. Now, um, you know, there's a long history to this debate. And my own personal feeling is that supermen are only in fantasy movies. Um, so I don't generally tend to believe in fantasies as any kind of helpful marker of reality. But I think it is a deep cultural argument. You know, Margaret Thatcher once said that she thought ultimately the fate of a nation depended on only a handful of people. So this is the question now, you know, do, does the fate of our nation, your nation, depend on a couple of superheroes who, who we haven't found yet, let's be honest, or does it actually instead depend on all of us learning better how to collaborate and work together to get deeper into responsibility and accountability for the societies that we inhabit, depend on and contribute to. And I think that's, you know, that's the, that is the deep political argument we're having. We pretend it's about authoritarianism versus democracy, but really it's about, do we believe in superheroes or do we believe in ourselves? Yeah, we did a show a couple of years ago. Uh, someone wrote a book about Superman isn't coming when it comes to the water crisis. Um, so really the future you're suggesting is between one dominated by the Shell Seven, activists committed to changing the world, and the Elon Musks and William F. Buckley's of the world. What about James Baldwin? You present him as a superhero in a way. Well, I don't think he thought of himself as a superhero at all. I think he saw himself as an important part of a much bigger historic change. And it's, it's very striking, you know, um, how Buckley is involved with and talking to such an incredibly diverse cross-section of people 
you know, that, that he's, of course, he's talking to, you know, Malcolm X, and he's talking to Martin Luther King, and he's talking to the Kennedys, and he's talking to the poor, and he's talking to the rich. And one of the reasons he can be such a great writer is because he doesn't think the solution lies in one of them, but across them, and the capacity of people to start to be able to talk to and work with each other. And I think, you know, that that's really the heart of Baldwin, which is a plea for people to listen to each other and come together to fix the problems, which this content, this individualist contention, how, you know, has, has created. So, Margaret, you're not letting us, letting me or our audience out of this. We can all be part of the future then when we talk about mapping the future. We can't rely on a Musk or a Buckley or even a Baldwin. We all need to take responsibility. That's the message in your play, The Shell Seven. That's the message in Uncharted. That's the message in a lot of other of your books, including um, A Bigger Prize and Women on Top. Is that the point of, of that you, you've always realized it, but that's the point for 2023, if there is one? I think the future is up to us. I think, you know, people often say they want to know the future, but they can't know the future because it hasn't happened yet. And what it will be is entirely up to the decisions that every single one of us makes. Yeah. 